As many of us are confined all around the world, we wanted to provide you with a daily podcast in partnership with Radio Halara, emitting from Palestine. Our ambition for it is not to add to the saturation of information about the pandemic we are currently experiencing, but rather to propose a 15-minute extension of our political imaginaries every day. The concept is very simple. Every day we ask one person the same question. What is for you a moment of true decolonization? The answer can be a historical moment or something they witnessed, something heroic and grandiose or rather discreet and mundane, a durable blow to the structures of colonialism or a short instant of liberation. While we are recording this podcast in privileged conditions of confinement, we keep in our thoughts the multitude of people around the world who do not share similar conditions or have no choice but to risk being affected by the pandemic because of criminal policies that have to do with neoliberalism, carceralism or colonialism. We thank you for listening and wish you and your loved ones the very best wherever you are. Hello everyone, today is the last episode of our daily podcast series, A Moment of True Decolonization. It's been a fantastic pleasure to, to be doing it and I'm very grateful to every guest who accepted to uh, be part of this series and I'm very grateful to our to, to today's guest, uh, Ruth Wilson-Kilmore. Uh, who's a professor of geography and director of the Center for Place, Culture and Politics at the City University of New York Graduate Center, a co-founder of many grassroots organizations, including California Prison Moratorium Project and Critical Resistance. She is the author of Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis and Opposition in Globalizing California, and uh, as well, a soon-to-be-published new book uh, called Change Everything, Racial Capitalism and the Case for Abolition. And I'm happy to say that she was also featured in one of our phenomenalist uh, issues, uh, one of my favorite issues, as it happened, uh, Space and Activism, about making abolition geography in California's Central Valley. <laughs> uh, hi, Ruthie. Hi, thank you for having me on your podcast. I have uh, something to share with the audience, and I'll be very curious to know what people think. In the late 1980s, Hazel Carby's Reconstructing Womanhood introduced a Southern California reading group to the Birmingham Center for Contemporary Cultural Studies. We had never doubted the continuity and interplay among campaigns for justice, community-generated inquiry, and informal and organized education, including university training. But craving fresh insights, we read newer texts in areas such as Black feminist theory to challenge what we thought we already knew. Keen interest in pedagogy, sparked by encounters with Paulo Freire and admiration for Carby's militant learning, made us curious about Stuart Hall, the person she called her best teacher at the center. It wasn't easy to find Hall's publications in the USA in the late 1980s. One of our cadre, a bookseller, came up with a few titles. Race, Articulation, and Society Structured in Dominance. Later, The Hard Road to Renewal. And soon thereafter, Hall's Lecture in Marxism and the Interpretation of Culture. So that's where we began. At first, 
we had a hard time saying what excited us so much. Hall's writing combines patient grounding with radiant analysis and recapitulates objectively and subjectively a project's layered setting. That is, attentive to the conditions of production and use of its constituent elements, each intervention's topics, methods, evidence, and explanatory procedures add up to an achievement that is stubbornly concrete yet exceeds its immediate design. The actions that cohere in and as Hall's compositions suggest to readers how to do something else. Capturing our imaginations, these qualities also, in the short run, thickened our tongues with awe. We couldn't say what we thought. Much later, we realized our insight turned out to be a, if not the, central lesson. Stuart Hall's work models social theory as action. It is a guide for thinking about, analyzing, understanding, and organizing to change distinct but densely interconnected geographies of what he described as the global maldistribution of material and symbolic resources. Therefore, against any flat insistence that specificity arises from fractures and partitions that are necessitated to achieve justice, the particular tendencies that we encountered over and over again in reading Stuart Hall underlie the ongoing urgency of expansive politics, including what, perhaps for want of a better word, we persist in calling internationalism. Although full of questions, we hadn't been idle. While Mandela was still in prison, militant intellectuals gathered from all over the planet, including delegates from COSATU, the ANC, and the Communist Party of South Africa, to debate the trajectories and challenges of anti-capitalist, anti-racist solidarity under the rubric Pan-Africanism Revisited, liberation movements in Africa and the diaspora. Meanwhile, others researched and drafted text for a Writers and Readers documentary comic about Anglophone, North American, and Caribbean Black writing, mostly fiction. That project, 400 Years of Attitude, Black Literature for Beginners, explored the structures of feeling through and against which writers crafted stories about becoming and remaining free. As an excursion into concrete determinants and multiple definitions of possibility, 400 years, which could have been called 500, also looked at how readers came to the texts, covers, publishers, literacy, subscriptions, appeals, ink, paper, distribution. We held popular education sessions, people in solidarity with the people of El Salvador. We had sessions with the Los Angeles Eight, seven Palestinians and one Kenyan who had been accused under the McCarran-Walter Act a law designed to identify and deport communists from post-World War II USA. And no matter what, we fought tirelessly in local and broader campaigns while always trying to learn more. Internationalism. 
and a good deal of anti-capitalist decolonial regionalism weakened as the Soviet Union lurched to its end. Structural adjustment undermines self-determination and mutual assistance for newly independent as well as newly industrializing states. In short, in the late 80s, politics was a mess, and we were busy trying to organize, promote ideas, and bargain in every possible arena. We could not agitate around race and difference without agitating against capitalism and its institutional infrastructures, the sorting and stacking machines that all kinds of organizers sought to slow down and rework or dismantle and use as scrap for new things. We feared patience might be the enemy of resistance, and at the same time we learned from Barbara Harlow that resistance could become part of the repertoire it was supposed to interrupt. In our daily efforts to incite people to campaign readiness, our default had become to repeat terrible details about any given site of struggle and enumerate the details horrifying antecedents. These eloquent harangues, presented as analyses of causes, actually focused on the effects of social, ideological, economic, cultural, and environmental upheaval. Further, our practice ignored an organizing principle at the heart of C.L.R. James's reminder that revolutions happen because people wait and wait and try every little thing. Having broken James's teaching into two pieces, we got stuck on wait and figured that slinging fatal facts and inflammatory slogans would make people feel our impatience and end, at end anybody's satisfaction with little things. The approach in retrospect was panic-driven disregard for distinctions between facts and values and inattention to the constant interplay among categories, experience, common sense, and consciousness. As a result, we were busy, but what we'd broken obscured two key words, try every. Reading Stuart Hall enlarged our capacity to notice and follow strands of already existing activity in practice, to see what was going on when it might seem like nothing was going on, what try every meant without valorizing all efforts. That is, we looked with greater care at Hall's analytical actions and then extended that attentiveness to the actions of the people we worked with, including within our own cadre, or against. The materials available, the discourses employed, and the historical geographies in which the struggles emerged, developed, and resolved, displaced, or dissipated. With care, but not prejudice, we traced out contradictions to focus on dynamics and processes in relation to these strands. Contradiction contours struggles, makes them specific within interdependent, politically unequal relationships. A contour can seem to be a natural or socially absolute barrier, an edge so dramatic 
that the remedy for a problem appears defined before a fight even begins. Fresh questions can open consciousness by suggesting unexpected fragilities or openings that might be politically near to hand. The point of action is to stretch the familiar in delightful and disturbing ways and thereby unsettle subjectivity, if only for a moment. At the same time, experiments with theoretical and categorical tools refocus objectivity by revealing context-specific elements of categories that seem self-evident, such as crime, race, nation, hunger. If Hall's vivid compositions as social theory serve as guides to action, they also model methodologies. Methodology is a sequence of actions that produce evidence, shape evidence into arguments, and arrange arguments into answers to the questions we ask. In the social world, actions frequently belie themselves because to wait and try is useful, meaningful, even purposeful, without being necessarily instrumental, measurable, or defined. Organizers and researchers also wait and try. Following from Hall, our group became productively aware of the opportunity to notice inconsistencies between experience and consciousness, scale and struggle. This awareness compelled us to rework questions and renew sequences of actions. Lifting a veil from theory and method freed us of a debilitating burden, which was our tendency, in spite of ourselves, to conform to a sound and style of political engagement bombarded by poisons and sweets, mostly resolving as rage. That was not our first takeaway from reading Stuart Hall. When it came to political writing and social theory, many of us had become bad readers. On the one hand, as our pursuit of Carby and Hall suggests, we avidly searched for guidance in a constellation of thinkers and writers who could show us how to make sense of late modernity's cumulative catastrophes and onrushing displacements. But in doing so, we tended to extract from the texts names, facts, or trends that could command our loyalty and, we imagined, the undivided attention of others. The quest to become members of something, however much it is drenched in sorry sectarian histories, highlights the felt need to organize imaginative and associative energies into appealing, durable, and extendable social forms. If the patterns we'd learned to rely on had become inadequate to requirements, then how should we fight? Political intellectual collectivities bubbled and cracked with controversies over culture and theory, belonging and partition. It was time to step down from the heights and look more closely at what was to hand. There was a lot. We could read it if we would read it. The power of literacy to make us fit for struggle should be exercised like a muscle, not waved around like a membership card. 
We had stopped noticing thought in its context and therefore failed to understand the action that inheres in non-fictional narrative, or perhaps I should say in not-fictional narrative. This sliver of awareness disturbed us enough to keep at it. Since we were organizers, and few of us in those days in the late 80s had steady day jobs that paid us to think and write, we were neither timid nor rigid. Avid readers of imaginative literature, we thought and fought about emplotment, the geographic ordering of space and the narrative ordering of time, entwined like a double helix or twisted from multiple dimensions into a continuous single surface like a Mebius strip. Art compelled our contemplative energies both to dwell in a work and to be inhabited by its interiority, atmosphere, action. In other words, when it came to genre, we were sluts. By contrast, we read political prose as though it were a cudgel. What stood out then were the sharp edges or flaws, as though the selection of themes, of findings, or assembly of theorists determined whether the blunt instrument would either inflict pain or shatter. As much as we generally aspired to fluency in admired authors, we didn't dwell in their implotments to understand how story and discourse revised our ability to wield subtler weapons. As I said, we read for allegiance, which seemed to demand either making or withholding a pledge. Another way to put this is we read in order to recite writing down and tightening our throats around data and phrases that stoked or deflected our rage. We didn't find ourselves any better at everyday tasks, much less able to rework what we were doing. And plus, we really sounded like cops with mid-1960s sociology degrees. The image, sounding like cops, wasn't altogether off, since reading to recite made us seem to be barking terms of deferential loyalty or shadowy threat. We expected the words magically to do their work. Magical words. We blasted meetings with declarations of this and that, and we were rather amazed that even when people listened to the opaque or poetic detailed facts and curlicues, nobody, including us, stopped in our tracks and changed course and did something else. For example, one magical word we had to work through was specificity and figure out how it meant to anchor an analysis close to an actual set of relations, events, crises, and demonstrate how a theoretical guide through concrete puzzles models approaches to dynamics in motion. What does an example do to strengthen our ability to grasp what's immediately before us in a lecture or a text in a problem that we confront and to use the generative excitement of muscle and brain to think about how we see and show terror, vulnerability, endurance, beauty, strength, 
in general, even though it's changing while we organize and write? What work did we think we'd done and could we do with the work before us? We knew better than to confuse vocabulary words with insight, yet we always hoped some word might signal new clarity that we could then share around. Busy to beguile by reciting, we didn't fight the angels of theory that roamed and swarmed everywhere. Warily, we switched gears and tried to read as engineers to understand the interworkings of system and structure, premise, form, tone, example, style, and the contextual questions. Where did each work arise? Why? What's different now as we read in time and place? We dismantled the blunt instrument to see not only what it was made of, but also how it was made. The nesting of placemaking energies concentrated in print. Engineers, doing and doing again. Not practice makes perfect, but rather repetition differentiates and stops being repetition at some point, if it's not recital, but rather rehearsal. Listing the processes in the texts as we came to understand them pushed us to a fresh appreciation of the sort of thing we had in front of us, the entirety of history as the Aymara teach us. At the end of each reading episode, we realized we had to try things on to try them out. This insight had everything to do with the group dynamic that oscillated between speaking and waiting, with ending that group dynamic and learning to speak and listen. We could suddenly see, by thinking about speaking and listening, the conviviality in Hall's writing, and felt welcomed by it. Stuart Hall explains how he's found his way to and through each puzzle explored in a lecture or essay, broadcast or interview. His curiosity models patiently connecting and expressing, articulating, to use one of his words, specific ways that the historical geographies of the present emerge, co-constituting in human environmental interactions, experience, ecologies, thought, and consciousness. There are no guarantees. The work persistently inclines through syncretic rather than purified, interdisciplinary imperatives. That's a hard thing to do, especially in the contemporary context of relentless claims that difference distinguishes so thoroughly that the only way to describe unity in struggle is through military analogy, ally, ally. It makes perfect sense people would have thought this because the war is real. But if it is real, then we should plan to win. But what would winning look like for people absorbed by rage as the shield against despair? Hall said we ought to work on what bites into our existence. He might have meant what's scary or perhaps what hurt us so much it made us angry, the things whose penetrating venom enraged our moods. It dawned on us then to stop reciting, really stop reciting, and start rehearsing. 
Rage, like stage fright, lays waste unless it's used. We decided to read Stuart Hall's texts as though we were actors. We had experience in agitprop, avant-garde theater, dance, performance art, and all of us were organizers. We embraced double consciousness as a gift, not a curse, feeling that to be alien unto ourselves is a kind of fluency, not binary, but never singular. By thinking about how politics is becoming, society is becoming, in the flesh, we rehearsed. Rehearsal is persistence in every little thing, while also the opposite of static. Rehearsal is the material symbolic substance for change, criticism of habits, inconsistencies, nightly notes, written but not scripted. Interpretive practice gave us courage to improvise and enabled us to be vulnerable in our skin to a wide variety of discourses and registers, materialities and directions. This is not a metaphor because to act requires detailed observation, which we might call hearing, although it need not be through the ears. Plot and place turn out not to be unities, which means action is not either. In the texts that Hall shared with us, thinkers gather to talk over specific problems, not to prove points already confirmed. It's fantastic how the topic that prompts each of Stuart Hall's inquiries inspired us to notice aspects of it we otherwise might ignore because we're thinking categories together differently, stretching even in the analytical project, geometrically discontinuous, politically connectable places. That is, actually existing activity is both the object of analysis, this article or lecture is about the activity X, and also the occasion to assemble activity, to coordinate thinkers whose topics might differ, but whose commitments also have developed in the dynamic context of capitalism, saving capitalism from capitalism. The through line, perhaps unsurprising in a recovering student of Henry James, as Hall was, as was I, explores consciousness as firm and tentative habits of becoming rather than aggregated effects of experience. The writers Hall talks with aren't random, while their analytical approach is sometimes distracting, though steadied by resolute anti-sectarianism. Their presence gently destroys any implication that specificity might be a tidally self-contained unity of time, place, and action. Instead, the object of analysis is prized open by practitioners like you and me, whose own development and movement through the grand oppositional epoch of capitalist modernity of racial capitalism, in short, demonstrates how specificity perpetually opens rather than partitions thought about the world by making the familiar strange, which is to say, productively alien. And that was a beginning to a perfect decolonial moment.
That's it for our daily podcast series. After 31 episodes, we move on to other projects. But our daily show on Radio Halara will continue with reruns of our regular podcast episodes. We could not be happier of what these 31 days have been. We've virtually been to Haiti, Palestine, the Lakota Nation, Morocco, Aboriginal Australia, Elam, Portugal, the Pacific, Black America, Ethiopia, Chiapas, Sudan, Guinea-Bissau and Cap Verde, Hawaii, the Navajo Nation, Lebanon, the land of Lao fairy tales, Aotearoa, Somalia, South Africa, Kenya, Nubia, Guadeloupe, the Cree Nation, the Caribbean, Mexico, Brazil, and the pages of the books by Stuart Hall today. We are extremely grateful to our 31 guests, some of whom have been long-standing collaborators with The Phenomenalist, and some others new ones. Just on SoundCloud, this series has already been listened more than 20,000 times. We are also grateful to you, dear listeners, and invite you to have a look at our main editorial project, The Phenomenalist magazine, if you don't know it already. We thank you very much and send you our warmest wishes to you and your loved ones.